0: welcome once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. In our sports culture, we all want to be in the starting lineup. We don't want to be one of the substitutes. That's not how God sees things. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Joseph, God's Prevailing Goodness, with this sermon entitled The Power of Substitution, which covers Genesis chapters 42 to 44. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis 43 and 44. And Judah said to Israel his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, then he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to the, my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thank you, Caitlin. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. O oh God who gives generously to those who ask. Give us understanding today, that we may keep your word. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things, and give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ, that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth, amen and amen. So we've been in a series that we, as I mentioned a moment ago, that we've taken a bit of a break from just for a week to focus on uh, Global Mission Spotlight. But before we took that break, we were uh, three weeks into a series on Joseph, the the story of Joseph that's recorded for us at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50. And when we stopped two weeks ago, we had gotten through the end of chapter 41. And what had happened by that point in the story is that God had uh, used Joseph by this point. He had been uh, sold into slavery by his brothers who hated him and were jealous of him because he was his father's favorite, and he rubbed it in their face. And uh, they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and through a number of circumstances, he's now risen to second in command over all of Egypt. And in essence, really, he, he is, he's in control of the country or of the kingdom. Uh, Pharaoh, in some uh, most ways, actually, is just a figurehead, and Joseph is running the show. And he had used Joseph to uh, speak prophecy, truth, prediction to the Pharaoh about dreams that the Pharaoh was having. And those dreams were about a coming famine that would hit not just Egypt, but really all of the known world. And uh, Joseph was the one who interpreted those dreams. And so by the end of chapter 41, this famine that God used Joseph to predict has come. And because Egypt was the only kingdom in place that was prepared for it, they are the only ones that had stored up food because they knew it was coming through Joseph. And so as a result, uh, where Jacob, Joseph's father is and his brothers, where they live in the land of Canaan, is in famine, and again, not just Canaan, but the whole world. And so people are coming from all over to Egypt. And Joseph is the one, again, in charge of overseeing the giving of food, the selling of food to all these foreigners who are wanting to take it back to where they're from. So as the famine comes to Canaan, Jacob says, and this is where we're picking up in chapter 42, and I'm gonna recap for you chapters 42 through 44, and then we'll zoom in on one little aspect of it for our time together this morning. But in the beginning of chapter 42, Jacob says to his sons, he says, I want you to go to, to Egypt and get grain for us. But then he says this, but not Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest son now. And he's the only other son born to Jacob from his wife, Rachel. And if you remember the beginning of the story, uh, Jacob's not learning a whole lot by this point in the story, because in the beginning of the story, he was playing favorites. And really, even before this story, he was playing favorites, because Rachel was his favorite. And because Rachel was his favorite, then Joseph, who was born of Rachel to Jacob, was his favorite. And now that Jacob, according, as far as Jacob knows, Uh, Joseph is no more. So now that Joseph is no more, as far as Jacob knows, it's now Benjamin. And so he doesn't send Benjamin with the brothers. He says, I want you to go to Egypt, but not Benjamin, because I need to protect Benjamin here. And if something were to happen to him, I would be absolutely devastated. I would die. My my gray hairs would take me down to Sheol, is the way that he says that Sheol in the Old Testament is the place of death that they would commonly refer to. And so he wants to keep Benjamin back, and so he does, and the 10 brothers go down to Egypt. And as they get down to Egypt, they don't know it, but they're bowing before Joseph. They don't realize that it's Joseph. But Joseph recognizes them. And not because he's out to get them and get revenge, but because he's actually going to test them to see if he can trust them. He has reason not to trust them, right? He, he deals harshly with them initially. He, he says, you're spies. How do I know that I can trust you? Uh, they very ironically reply back and say, well, we're honest men. <laughs> Don't you know that he at that point, Joseph at that point, just had to have rolled his eyes? Like, oh, really? Yeah, okay. He says, we're honest men. And, and Joseph begins asking them questions. Do you have any other family members? Is your father still alive? Any other brothers? that aren't with you. And they're they're a little perplexed as to why this king, acting king over this massive kingdom of Egypt is asking them about their family, but they answer accordingly. And they say, no, our father is still alive. He's, He's back in Canaan. And we do have one younger brother who's not with us. And so Joseph, again, summarizing a lot of what's going on in chapter 42 here, but Joseph says, okay, here's the deal. I think you're spies. So in order to, for you to get my trust that you're not spies, go back to your father and come back with your brother, your youngest brother who's not with you. Of course, they are really, really uh, worried about this because they know that there's no way that Jacob is gonna send Benjamin down. And what Joseph says is this. He says, I'll fill your bags with grain now Uh, but if you want more grain from me in the future, if you wanna see my face again, and if you want to have more, then you have to bring your brother back because he only gave them enough grain to last them for a little while. Now, it's at this point in the story that the brothers, something really interesting happens with the brothers where they admit their guilt. They're talking amongst each other, and, and Joseph is in the room. He's still right there with them, and they begin to say things like, surely we are guilty for what we did to our brother, talking about Joseph. And then they say this, this is really interesting, because we didn't get this tidbit back in chapter 37, when we had the account of where they threw, him, threw Joseph into the pit, it was, it was just very matter of fact. They threw him into the pit, and then they went about their business. They ate lunch, not far from the pit, presumably, and they were just very cold-hearted. But here, we get a little picture of what that was like. In verse 21 of 42, it says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And listen to this. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So just, I just want you to think back to that part of the story, chapter 37, where he's being thrown into the pit, and just imagine what that must have been like. Blood-curdling screams coming from Joseph. They just walk away and eat lunch. Just, again, a picture of how much these brothers hated Joseph. And now they're convinced. Now they're convinced God is out to get us. This is... This is retribution because now we're in a predicament that we can't figure out because there's no way, there's no way Benjamin, Jacob, our father, is gonna let Benjamin come back here with us when we need to. Now Joseph is in the room and they don't know that he can understand them in their language. And it says, a few, a few verses later, it says, then he, Joseph, turned away from them and wept. As we progress through this story, you're going to notice a lot of weeping from Joseph. Gives us a picture into his own heart because the weeping is not self-indulgent and woe is me. The weeping is that he actually loves his brothers, which is profound. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But he weeps and he sends them off and they make their way back up to Jacob in Canaan. And they tell Jacob what's happened. They have the grain and and then they say, uh, oh, by the way, Dad, um, when we need to go back and get more, we have to take Benjamin with us. And Jacob, it says in the text that he was bereaved, which is just this word that means anguish of the soul. Because Jacob's life, in the way that it used to be tied up in Joseph, is now tied up in Benjamin. And he's he's convinced that if Benjamin leaves his sight that what will happen to Benjamin is what happened to Joseph. And he won't let him go. He says, never, I, I will not let Benjamin go. And it's at this point that Judah of all people, one of the older brothers, Judah, Judah of all people inserts himself into this narrative. And he positions himself kind of in the gap, if you will, between Benjamin and Jacob. And the reason I say Judah of all people is because uh, Judah was a mess. (laughs) I don't know if you remember, but I had alluded to to it a couple of weeks ago. There's this story after chapter 37 of. Of the brothers throwing, the account of the brothers throwing Joseph into the pit and selling him into slavery. The next thing you know, you get to chapter 38, and out of nowhere is this story, the whole chapter about Judah and Tamar. And, and the story is, is a really, really messed up story because it's, it's about Judah who had married a Canaanite woman, which, first of all, was not what God desired for his people. He had given them specific instructions not to intermarry among other nations. So first he's out of line there and he marries a Canaanite woman. She dies, and then the next thing you know, he's sleeping with what he thinks is a prostitute, but it's actually his daughter-in-law. I told you it was weird, messed up, okay? And not only does he sleep with his daughter-in-law, who he thinks is a prostitute, but she gets pregnant with his twins. And that's the end of the story. And then you're back in the Joseph story in chapter 39, and you're going, what just happened? Where did this come from, and what is this all about? And part of the story is showing us the lineage of Jesus, which we'll talk about in a moment, but part of it is to show us Judah's an evil, vile dude. He's not the one that you're watching grow up and say, you know, I hope my son ends up like that. He's a scoundrel. But here he is now in chapter 43 and we see something that doesn't match up with that Judah we knew. A lot of time has passed, 17 years in fact, between when they sold their brother into slavery and now when they're going before him in Egypt. And somewhere in that 17 year span, there seems to be some indication of transformation and change at the heart level in Judah. Because Judah now, the overly selfish one before, is becoming oddly selfless. Because what he's saying now before his father that we had read for us just a moment ago, is he's now standing in the gap, as it were, between Benjamin and Jacob, and he's saying, Dad, I will be his security. If I don't bring Benjamin safely back to you, then I will bear the blame of his life forever. In other words, I'll I'll stand in the place that he should stand and I will be his security and put the wrath on me if anything happens to him. Apparently, there was just enough in that little speech that he gave to his father that turned the heart of Jacob enough to where he would say, okay, Benjamin can go with you. But he's still distressed and he's still bereaved. And so the brothers and Benjamin now go back down when it's time to get more food. They go back down to Egypt and when they're approaching Joseph from far off, Joseph sees them and, and he counts them. He's, and he's, he see oh, there's, there's another one. Benjamin's with them. In the meantime, he had kept Simeon. Joseph had kept Simeon with him in Egypt as kind of a, Basically, uh, if you you don't come back for food, you need to come back to get your brother. So Simeon had been in captivity with Joseph, and Joseph had been treating him kindly there, but he had been a servant of Joseph, and now the brothers are all back together, all of them. Now, they don't know it, but all 12 are together now. And Joseph invites them into his home, and he tells his servant, uh, prepare the fattened calf which is only for special occasions. And they're, now they're really worried. The brothers are really worried now because they're convinced that this is just a ploy to get them into his house so that he can then attack them and, and make them servants of him. And so they're just not trusting Joseph at all. But Joseph brings them in and he has them sit at a table and there's two different tables. There's Joseph's table and then there's their table because the Egyptians weren't allowed to eat with Hebrew people. But Joseph does something beautiful where the food that's being brought to his table, the good food, he takes portions of it and he sends it over to their table. And then he gives five times the portion to Benjamin. Because Joseph's love for Benjamin is unique because he knows this this is the one whom I share a mother with. He's my full brother, not just a half brother. So he calls Benjamin over and he says, to the brothers, is, is this your younger brother, this, this Benjamin you spoke of? And they say, yes, and he can't control himself. He's so overcome with emotion. He says, excuse me, I, I need a moment. And he goes out into a different chamber and he weeps again. Because he can't believe this is happening. And so as the story continues and in the short time that we have, there's go read it for yourselves. There's a lot going on in here that I'm only giving you just the highlights of but he sends them back again, again, full of grain. But before he sends them back, he tells one of his servants, he says, hey, take my cup, the silver cup that only Joseph drinks out of, and he says, slip it into Benjamin's sack, and he sends them away. After they've been gone for a short amount of time, he sends the servant, he says, go run them down, chase after them, take them over, and when you do, uh, tell them, speak harshly with them. How could you return my good with evil? Someone, one of you took my cup, took the cup of Joseph. When that happens, the brothers are going, hold on, we would never do that. Why would you accuse us of such a thing? Search all of our sacks, you'll find no cup. And so they do, and they find it in Benjamin's. And the brothers, it says, rip their clothes, which is a demonstration of anguish and lament and fear, crying out, oh, what have we done? And so they realize, because, here's what they know, They know that Benjamin now is going to be a servant of Joseph as the guilty one. So they go back with Benjamin yet again to Egypt, and they're coming to Joseph. Joseph says to them, do you not know that whoever took my cup, I now will basically have to punish and be a servant of mine? And who jumps into the story yet again? It's Judah. Judah. Judah had interceded, so to speak, before his father for Benjamin. now he's doing the same thing before Joseph. He inserts himself in chapter four, uh, 44. He, he gets in front of Joseph and he says, uh, hold on, let me explain everything that's going on here. And he recaps the story and he, says, he basically says, there's no way, there's no way my dad will live. If we go back without Benjamin, he'll die on the spot in his old age out of grief and out of bereavement. And then he says to Joseph something similar that he had said to his father. At the end of chapter 44, we'll read it again. It says this in verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah is curiously selfless now. And he's saying, I'll stand in his place so that he can go free. Now, why would I make a big deal about this? Why is this noteworthy? Well, let me give you two reasons. Two reasons as to the role of Judah in Joseph's story. Here's the first one to remind us that God loves substitution. Because really, what is Judah doing in this story, first before his father and then before Joseph? He's he's saying, I'll be the substitute. I'll be the substitute. Now there's, there's something deeper about this that I don't want us to miss, about the heart of God and how he loves substitution. If you go to the book of Leviticus, there's something profound that happens there, and I realize that I just said something that most of you went, the book of what? Why would I ever go there? If you've been a reader of the Bible, you know that's where you go to typically get lost (laughs) and confused. It's just this big, long book of all these sacrificial requirements. If God's people are gonna be uh, able to be in the presence of God and have the presence of God dwelling with them in in the tabernacle, then here's all that's required for sin to be dealt with so that a sinful people can still approach a holy God. And so all these animals had to be slaughtered is the, base, is the basis of it. And there are all these different rules and laws. There's this type of animal that has to be killed for this type of sin, and this animal for this sin, and this animal for this sin, and then there were grain offerings and food offerings and so on and so forth. But it's those animal sacrifices that were so gory, right? We might think, we might have this picture of the tabernacle and eventually the temple as this in ornate, beautiful place, and it was, but it was a place of death. And it reeked of death, and there was blood everywhere. But in Leviticus, it says, it has a phrase that happens over and over again. In Leviticus, it's talking about these these animal sacrifices, and these animals have been killed and slaughtered, and now they're on the altar, and they're being burned as an offering to the Lord. And it says that as the smoke rises to heaven, as it were, and it repeats this many times over, It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And what does that mean? What are we to do with that? Well, does that mean that God is this bloodthirsty God that loves death? No, actually quite the opposite. He loves his people so much that he loves a substitute so that he doesn't have to punish them a substitute in their place, that his wrath for sin is poured out on so that his love for his people can be experienced. It was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, not because God loves death, but because God loves substitution. And so Judah, what's happening here with Judah? I mean, yes, of course, it's a cool story of Judah stepping into the gap and saying, hey, I'll go in place of my brother, and I'll be his security, and if I mess anything up, put the blame on me all my life and forever. But it's a shadow of what's to come, because listen, you can't miss this. The substitutionary attitude of Judah, the substitutionary attitude of Judah was just a picture, just a foreshadowing of a substitutionary atonement that was to come. Full and complete. Because Judah offered himself for a brother who had done him no wrong. But there's one who will come, Jesus, who will offer himself for enemies who had done him wrong in every way. As Keller has famously said, Judah is just this this picture of a, a true and better Judah. His name is Jesus. You remember what Judah said and what we had read for us in chapter 43, verse nine, he said, let me bear the blame forever. Jesus is the pledge of our eternal safety. Not just a journey not just if I, if I go to Egypt and come back and anything has happened to Benjamin, but for the, all, for the rest of all of eternity, Jesus says before the Father, he says to, to the Father of all creation, put the blame on me forever. Why? So that those whom you love will flourish and be free to experience all of you. a Couple of questions for you to consider. Do you marvel at the one who is your substitute? Do you marvel at Jesus? We use this big theological term called substitutionary atonement that's at the heart of Christianity. And it simply is this. It's that sinful people deserving of God's wrath have a substitute who stands in the gap before them, before the Father, and he says, the wrath they deserve because of their sin, put it on me, and I'll take the blame forever. And as the only one who ever walked the face of the earth undeserving of that wrath, pour it out on me. I am their substitute, so that, and here's the, if that's not profound enough, here's the most astonishing piece. So that what's true of me, says Jesus, my righteousness becomes true of them. So that in my substitution for them, they now stand before the Father approved, well pleased, righteous. Now here's the problem with church, is that we can go and hear that so much that it becomes something we don't marvel at anymore. And if that's you, I feel that with you oftentimes, and and whenever God just strikes me with that question, when's the last time you marveled at Jesus, your substitute? I hope and pray, and often it has been, that my my prayer response, the prompting of my heart would be, oh God, forgive me, because that is something I don't wanna ever grow tired of. Because in my fallen state now, although redeemed, I will lose that astonishment, but for all of eternity when I'm with you in glory and sin is no more, that marveling, that awe and wonder will never go away, and so make me like that now. Give me perspective now of the glory and the wonder and the awe that there was a substitute for me when I was completely helpless, lost, bound for hell. Secondly, do you model, do you model that substitution to the world around you? In other words, when Christ is in us, when we've believed upon him as our substitute, then he begins to live through us in such a way that we become the very aroma of Christ. This is how 2 Corinthians says it, it says, "'But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us "'in triumphal procession, and through us spreads "'the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. "'For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those "'who are being saved and among those who are perishing one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then here's the question. Who is sufficient for these things? The answer is none of us are sufficient for it, but through Christ in us. That's who we are. When you hear aroma of Christ, here's something you can think of. Aroma of Christ is saying, is saying I'll die to myself. I'll die to my needs. I'll die to my rights so that you can flourish so that you can be free. That's the the nature of our substitute Jesus and now he's in us so therefore that becomes our nature. It's what Jesus was getting at when he said that if you wanna follow me, you gotta take up your cross daily, deny yourself, follow me. It's this giving of self away so that others may flourish. So how often do we marvel King Jesus, our substitute, and how often do we mimic him in the world around us? Only by his power and strength within us. Let me give you one more reason, short time that we have left. One more reason of the role of Judah and Joseph's story, and it's it's to remind us that God redeems, changes, and uses vile and broken people for his kingdom purposes. And that is wonderful, good news for me. (laughs) Remember who Judah was, I won't recap it, but as I said earlier, it's a crooked man. But now we see a changed Judah in this part of the story. And we remember the language of scripture elsewhere where it says that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And and that's an expression that the Bible uses to remind us that he came from Judah. He he is the seed of Judah. We we knew that it would be from the seed of Abraham that all nations would be be blessed. But now we know that it's through this line of of Abraham uh, to to Isaac, to Jacob, and now to Judah. And then it's going to be through the the line of Judah that now the, the Savior will come. And part of why that's such good news is because when you study that lineage of Jesus that Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew gives us, it's a messed up people group. So many sinners, so many evildoers, so many vile people. And it reminds us that if he can change and redeem and use people like that to bring about the Savior and expand his kingdom to all the world throughout all of eternity, then he can certainly use me. He can change me. He can rectify my wayward heart. And beyond my wildest imaginations, he doesn't leave me in the place of redemption, he uses me to bring reconciliation. Our God is a God who can turn the most wicked of hearts, the most disreputable of lives, the most depraved of desires. He can change. And he does change. He does it all the time. The problem is that we, um, we really struggle to believe that's true, that he's still in the business of changing lives and hearts, especially those of us who are absolutely convinced that we're beyond his grace. In other words, we, I'm just too vile. I'm too messed up. I'm too simple. There's no way. I have have out sinned the grace of God. You don't know how bad I am. But that's all of us. At the heart level, that is all of us. And the good news of the substitute of Jesus is that he died for every single one of the vilest of us. You're never without hope when it comes to Jesus. What happens when we don't believe that Jesus is a safe place to run is we run to the worst hiding places, did we not? Jesus is our hiding place. Listen to this, I put my notes up before I wanted to read this to you. Uh, Psalm 32 7, I love this language. The Psalmist says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Love that language. We understand to appropriate and understand correctly that Jesus is that hiding place. That it's him through which we receive our deliverance and our safety. Just like Judah said, I will be his safety. Jesus, I am your safety. But when we don't believe that he's those things, we run to the worst of hiding places. And it reminds me of when my kids were little and we'd play hide and seek and they'd hide in the worst places. (laughs) Now to them, they thought it was a good hiding place. Right, three year old, hearing dad count, 18, 19, 20, ready or not, here I come and I turn the corner and they're standing in the doorway. You know, and to them, they're thinking, he's never gonna see me here. And you, then you have to play that game where it's like, where is she? And you're looking right over where she is. I don't see her, you know. But it's a terrible hiding place. But I think there's a metaphor for, for us, an analogy for us there spiritually, where we have the greatest of hiding places, the safest of places under his wings. Will he hold us and protect us and guard us and be our sure rock? and fortress, and we run to all these other things to hide. Because we don't really believe that's who he is. Some of those things are good things, but they become detrimental to us. We hide in our jobs, we hide in our reputations, we hide in our kids, we're just like Jacob, we wrap our lives up in our kids, and we think it's a good hiding place. Some of the things that we hide in, we know are not good hiding places, but we just don't know how to get out. We hide in pornography and sex addiction. We hide in substance abuse and alcoholism. We, we hide in really, really abusive and not healthy relationships. And we know, we just don't know how to get out of it. But let me tell you, it starts with running to Jesus, who is your sure and safe hiding place. The one who loves you so much that he would be your substitute. Father, would you give us strength to run to you, to run to you, Jesus? Thank you for being our hiding place. Forgive us of all the ways in which we convince ourselves that where we are currently hiding is really not, not wise and not helpful, and not good. Thank you. Thank you that you're our substitute. May we marvel, may we leave here this morning marveling at the wonder of your death and your resurrection. And would you live through us that we may model that for the world so that they may see your beauty as well. Would you do it all for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing together